I don't appreciate having to write my own book talk. Okay. <laughs> what <do> you- <laughs> Normally, it's, I just open the drive. I'm like, what did Renee, what research did Renee come up with? Oh, and I yeah. was like, oh, I got to research to find your, my That's own? true. We had what to do find our like? own <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> Welcome to Book Talk Etc., a podcast bound to grow your TBR. I'm Tina. And I'm Renee. And this is a conversational podcast about books and more from two Midwest mood readers who are easily distracted by new releases. And today, we are talking about books set in our favorite decades. If you enjoy listening, we'd love for you to follow us on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have a minute, please consider leaving us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or sharing us on social media. All of this truly helps other book lovers find us. Hey, Tina. Hi, Renee. How are you? I'm great. I was going to say Midwest weather update. The sun's shining. The sun is shining, which is exciting. It's still 36 here, but it's about to be in the 70s next week. I was laughing because I remember some of our early feedback. Somebody was like, you know... (laughs) Renee opens the show and says, hey, Tina. And Tina, you just say, hey, (laughs) instead of addressing Renee by name. Like, you should probably do that. I was like, that is a very good point. Yes. Hi, Renee. It's good to see you. It's been a few days, a few extra days than normal between our recording sessions. We had a, we had double, doubled up on recording. So we have Mm -hmm. had a break and it's been weird, not, (laughs) not recording every week. So. We have a lot to catch up on. You would think I would get a lot more reading done with a little break. I didn't. I sure didn't. I watched Love is Blind. I've caught up on Vanderpump Rules. All my TV shows I'm caught up on. Mm -hmm. I did read, of course, but I'm like, you know, it's whenever we have a break, I always have this fantasy of getting a lot of reading done, and it sometimes doesn't happen that way. And that's okay. Same. I I did a little side reading. I've got got books started here, there, and everywhere, Everywhere. and it's Mm -hmm. kind of fun to do. I'd I rarely do that. So every now and then it's kind of fun to do that. Because then they finish sometimes at the same time. And then you get quickly two books added to your list, which I always really like. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Because that matters. (laughs) Let me tell you something I have been into. Um, It is an app. This is my loving lately. And this recommendation is courtesy of my neighbor, Nora, who said that I had to give her a shout out if I brought it. And indeed, I have brought it. So thank you, Nora. It's an app for your phone called Planta. Planta. And what you're doing, it's where you can set up individual care schedules and reminders for your plants. So I have a ton of, I don't know, plants all over the place. I want to get a lot more, but I have, you may have remembered them. They were on Instagram a lot. I had a bunch of hanging plants that were on my bookshelves, and I've gotten a few more since then. What I love about this app is because it tells you how to water, like how much water your plant likes. Does it like super dry soil? Does it like damp soil? How much light they like and things like that. So I find it to be very helpful. The paid version will also give you recommendations, step-by-step care guides, identification. You can take a picture and it'll tell you what the plant is, a light meter. if It'll measure the light and where the plant is and say, no, this is not enough light or yes, this is good. I haven't splurged yet, but I'm tempted. It's $36 a year. (laughs) So I have to think (laughs) about if I'm going to, which is like the cost of a plant. So I don't know why I just don't do it and 
you know, take care of my plants better. So to add your plant to this app, you look it up by name. And I have had these plants for a really long time. And I'm like, I don't know. For one one plant I thought was fake because I never watered it for like six months and it looked great. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know what these are. So what I've been doing is I use Google Lens to search and it's worked out super well. So Google Lens, you can take a picture of something and it'll search the web for that photo. So I've been doing that to identify my plants. But anyway, if you are a plant lover like me, I would like personalized recommendations as to when to water. So like every couple of days, it'll be like, oh, time to water your ZZ plant. I'm like, this is perfect. Definitely check it out. It's the app called Planta. That's amazing. I have no plants in my house because I have never been able to keep them alive. Not a plant. And I'm not exactly sure necessarily which plants are poisonous to cats. And oh, so and he's the app an, tells he's you. an eater. I'm well, this would be something I would definitely mm-hmm. use. Also, maybe then I could keep plant alive. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a good idea. Yeah, because it does tell you if one of the point plants I have is poisonous. It says use at your own risk. I'm like, oh my God. And and I don't have a cat, so it's not a huge deal. But I'm like, and and then I clicked on it. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, is it harmful to breathe? (laughs) Like, can I have this plant? (laughs) And it meant like if you eat it, it's not good for you. So Okay. Also, I've never heard of Google Lens, but that just blew my mind. Yeah. I I was kind of proud of myself because I really wanted that feature of Planta. And I was like, I'm not ready to spend the money yet. So let me just see. If only there was a way I could take a picture of something. I'm like, oh my God, this exists. It's called Google Lens. So yeah, it's just um, the Google app. If you have on your phone, Mm -hmm. you'll notice there's like a little picture of a camera. Click on that and then take a picture of whatever. And you can use this for anything. You can use it for clothing. You could use it for restaurants. I mean, shoes, whatever. And then it'll search the web for that product. That is insane. You just gave us a really excellent double loving lately. (laughs) Double loving lately for you. All right. Okay. My loving lately is a book that I bought this week on my Barnes and Noble bookstore browse. And it also has to do with the fact that April is National Poetry Month. Now, I am not a regular reader of poetry, but I do like it when I come across poems every now and then that I actually understand. And I don't know. And there's something about Mary Oliver, her poetry, and especially one of my favorites by her is called The Journey, which is actually what then got my attention when I went to the bookstore. They had on display for National Poetry Month, a book by Mary Oliver called Devotions, which is a collection of poems selected by Mary herself uh, before she died. And There's just hundreds of her poems in this one book. They're poems that she selected from all of her books. So starting in 1963 up through, I think her last book was published in 2015. They focus on her love of the physical world and all living things. So lots of poems with nature and the sea. And there's quite a few poems about pets and dogs, especially. I mean, her poetry is really just right up my alley as far as, you know, I'm a nature lover. And I don't know, there's something I really like. So I'm just kind of randomly picking and choosing. The book was really reasonable. It's it's paperback. And I can just read as I go. Like whatever my mood hits, I'm picking just different things. And I really like it. I can't say that I necessarily understand every single one, but I like the flow of her poetry. So I don't know if you've been thinking about 
giving poetry a try. I think Mary Oliver is is a really great start. And especially if you like nature and uh, observations of the physical world, then this particular book might be for you. It's a Devotions by Mary Oliver. Yes. As soon as you said nature, and I was like, oh, that's why you picked it up, mm-hmm. or that's how it found you, how it called to you. Yes. Yes. Excellent. It's fun to challenge mm-hmm. our reading every now and then. And and also, it's really easy to just open up and read a short poem. Right. And f- right. You feel accomp- like you feel accomplished. Like I read, a, I could see that. I read a poem today. <laughs> I know. Put that on your like daily to do list. I read a poem. Like yes. I, it sounds so sophisticated. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let me tell you about my latest read. Oh God. Oh man. Okay, folks. Wow. Is latest. this good or bad? Oh, it's good for me. Oh, okay. Boy, oh boy. This book is Adelaide by Genevieve Wheeler. You probably have heard of this one. I brought it as one of my April picks to the Books on the Radar episode. It's also a book of the month pick for this month. And it's about 26-year-old Adelaide Williams. She is an American woman living in London. She's making her way in her career, has a solid group of friends, and is generally enjoying her life. And then she meets Rory Hughes. She was not looking for love, but he completely changes everything for her. He's charming and interesting. And he feels like the one. And she's very impressed with just everything he's accomplished. And she's like, wait a minute, could this be my person? The problem is he's a flake. He is a, <laughs> a, a person that does not text back. He ghosts her at, on occasion. But then when they're together, they have these amazing, incredible times. So she's very confused. He doesn't call her his girlfriend, despite them spending tons and tons of time together doesn't make advanced plans, and she has not yet met his friend group, but Adelaide's a fixer, and she quickly becomes engulfed in Rory's life, even though it means losing pieces of herself. I would call this a millennial sad girl novel. That's a compliment. I love those types of books. This book really worked for me. It's a great debut. The writing is really, really good. What I loved about it is that it felt honest and raw. I think the author addressed mental health in a very real way. And read the content warnings for this one because there's a couple of difficult scenes. But I thought, this is life. Like, it felt very, very real. And I thought she captured that feeling of what it's like to be young and in love and desperately wanting to grow up and find yourself. And she would see signs like, oh my gosh, you were at this game, at this Yankees game in America. I was at that same game. It must be fate. Like, trying to twist and turn these different things and coincidences into saying, oh, this is fate. We're meant to be together. My one criticism is that there was a bit of time hopping that drove me nuts at first. So we'd be in present day, and instead of a new chapter that said then or indicated we're going back in time, she'd just throw us into the past where Adelaide and Rory are like doing something else or it's like before they met. I'm like, wait, what's going on? So the it wasn't super linear at times, but once I got used to it, it was fine. But it's worth mentioning because it threw me off for a bit. There were times when I wanted to throttle Rory. <laughs> and I can acknowledge it. Yes, Adelaide was at fault too. There were areas where I'm like, oh my gosh, girl, I want you to do this and that. If I was your friend, here's what I would be saying. But Rory, I didn't want to feel for him. I didn't want to see both sides of the story. I was just mad at him. <laughs> and I'm trying not to obviously give spoilers. I rooted for Adelaide the whole time. And I think despite her flaws, she came across as a very realistic character. And the author gave us a very realistic story. I know people like Adelaide. I have been a version of Adelaide myself. 
I loved this book. I thought it was so great. And if you want to chat about it, if you've read it, feel free to send me a message. This was Adelaide by Genevieve Wheeler. Okay. Yeah. I definitely want to give that a try. Did you listen at all to that? I did a combo and the audio was good. Okay. All right. Yeah. I... You said just enough, but also you've left me still very intrigued as to how Good. it wrapped up because I want to, I'm, I'm thinking like, well, did she, did they fix it? Did they, did, are they together? You. Like, I, I can't wanna... tell you. I just, I, you've got to read it. Not it did she fix it, but did it were there fixed? problems like resolved and were they, were they able to come to a, like a a place in their relationship where they were happy or did they break up? Like, I want to know. If you like relationship stories, you'll like this. It's not the most propulsive and, you know, there's not a ton of plot. There's definitely plot, but the characters and their relationship and the secrets and the what's going to happen is what kept me reading. I read this over the course of a weekend. So I think this is a pretty fast one. Okay. All right. Good. All right. My latest read is You Know Her by Megan Jeanette. This is a new release, and it is it is a thriller. And this is about two women. And I am going to pick and choose what I say here. I do not like the Goodreads synopsis, so take that for what it's worth. Um, I would I, I kind of would skip that if you think you might read this. But this is about two women. So one, the first woman is Sophie. She's a bartender, and she is a very personable at first bartender. She has been bartending for years. She's seen a lot. She's heard a lot. And if you've worked in the restaurant industry at all, then you know what it's like to work in customer service. And she comes across a lot of customers, men especially, who are belligerent and drunk and just not nice to women. And she has a problem with that. Then you also have in this story police officer Nora Martin, and she is new to the police department. This is set in Virginia, and she is trying very hard to learn the ropes from her boss, who's Detective Murphy, while at the same time ignoring all the men in her in the department that have a problem with her because they say she's a diversity hire. She's a black woman. And she ends up frequenting the bar where Sophie works. They kind of develop this friendship, if you will, because Sophie is not kind of a, a girl's girl. She's a little bit hard to get to know. Then something starts happening. Men are starting to be killed, murdered. Here and there, a little bit here, a little bit there. Winter goes into spring, the seasons change, and men's bodies continue to pop up in unexpected places. Now, this is not a spoiler, I promise. Sophie is killing them. (laughs) She has reached a point with several men, actually almost all the men she has that she meets. She's not killing all of them, but she is very filled with rage about how men treat women. Now, her new friend's a police officer, so I'm going to leave it there and let you think about how is that going to go? Because Nora ends up investigating these cases. This was a really interesting thriller. It's billed as a cat and mouse thriller. I would kind, I would pretty much agree with that. It is also marketed as Killing Eve meets Dexter. 
I think I would agree partly with that. And that's actually what pulled me in to wanting to read this because I love the show Killing Eve and I also loved the book, the Dexter books. What I think does not hold up is the fact that in Killing, with Killing Eve, there was some dark humor that kept the story going. This story could have used some dark humor. There really wasn't any, and I kept expecting there to be some. Also, I have a little bit of an issue with the part of the plot that has to do with her killing and how she went about doing that. I can't really say too much more about that. But what I will say, here's some things that I really liked. I really like Nora. I listened to this on audio. Exe Sands narrated for Nora and Sophia Moss narrated for Sophie. I like both of them. But Exe Sands does talk faster. So for her sections, I had to slow down the audio. But I like that we got more than one narrator. I really liked the fact that, yeah, this is a bit of a feminist book, I guess I would say, although it it did cross the line into becoming rage-filled. I also really liked the fact that I worked in the restaurant industry. I waitressed for many years. I saw a lot of these behaviors. I mean, she is advocating for women and the fact that like she was just fed up with how she was treated by men, like even just slights, like being called honey or being, you know, like, well, you should just smile. You'd look prettier if you smile. Like things like that, that really drive women nuts. This writing, this author's writing is very poetic, very poetic. And I acknowledge that and I enjoyed that up to a point. And then it became a bit too much. It became to feel a little bit overwritten. So for example, if there was a a thunderstorm coming in, it took two to three sentences about the fact that the lightning had teeth and things like that in order to to just tell me there's a thunderstorm. I'm I understand that sort I don't need that for everything in the book. There's a lot of bug imagery. If bugs, especially mites crawling under your skin, blowflies, if intricate details about bugs bother you, then you this might not be for you. Lots of bugs imagery. It didn't bother me, but it became a bit too much. I don't know where I land with this. I also am not super happy with resolutions. And I'm I'm going to leave it at that. There are certain aspects of this book that I will say, if you like things tied up in your stories by the end, then you're going to have a problem with this as I did. I don't need everything tied up, but I, I do need more than what I feel like I got here. So all in all, this is a middle of the road thriller for me, but I think this could work and is working for a lot of people. So definitely go out and check some other reviews. It's You Know Her by Megan Jeanette. Interesting. I have not heard of this book. I was looking it up when you were talking and Mm -hmm. I agree. This one says Killing Eve meets sharp objects. I'm like, oh, that is a Oh, maybe I made up the Dexter then. (laughs) Because I think I have that in my notes. Killing Eve meets Dexter. I feel like that could work too, given what you explained. And that's how it felt to me. Like a a little bit of a combination of that. The flowery writing kind of throws me in a plot like this. I would never have expected that. So Right. It's, hmm. It is really, it's kind of original. 
And I was really actually liking that aspect of it until it became too much. A a little, I don't know, a little goes a long way. But it's, it's, uh, I think, clearly her writing style. So it's, it's definitely going to appeal to some people and maybe not to every, I don't know, maybe not to everyone, but still it was great. It was great writing when you want, if you want something different, give it a go, give it a go. All right. Well, this is Renee's brainchild, this episode topic. I was so impressed when you proposed it. I'm like, (laughs) where'd she come up with this? But we thought it would be fun to read books set in our favorite decade. And so for book talk today, it's a little bit of a departure. It's not solely about books, but we wanted to talk about some of the pop culture moments, some of the best ofs of the particular decades. Now, what I want to know, Renee, what decade did you pick and why'd you pick it? I picked the 1980s because I love the 1980s. That is really when I grew up, although I was born in the 70s, but I grew up in the 80s. And I just, like, that's my decade. I remember so much. And if you follow me on Instagram, I share a lot of 80s. Like, I forget the accounts. I'll link to the accounts if you're interested. But like 80s memes, which just like for me, the 80s are just filled with nostalgia. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we were talking beforehand and, and got our, our ages squared away. I was eight when the 80s started and I had like was just turning 18 when they ended. And so I really like I grew up. I remember everything. I mean, I don't know. So anyway, that's my favorite decade. Yeah. And I, I knew I before you even proposed this, I would have guessed 1980 would have been the <laughs> decade that you chose. I picked the 90s for very similar reasons. I was born in the 80s. I don't remember a ton of it. I mean, I don't know, maybe a little bit. But I was seven when the decade 1990 started and 17, you know, by the end of it. And so a lot of this, like that's really where a lot of the the memories that stick out in my mind come to play. Mm-hmm. And it was really fun to do some research for this. So we wanted to talk about you know what the decade represented and some of the cultural touchstones. So you can you can begin since you know we'll go in chronological order. Okay. <laughs> so the eighties is the decade of big hair, big phones, pastel suits, Cabbage Patch Kids, Rubik's cubes, Air Jordans, Pac Man, and more. Now those are obviously very pop culture ish because it was also. The decade, like big events happened in the 80s. One big event was the Challenger disaster, which happened January 20th, 1986. That was when the NASA's Challenger mission just exploded seconds after taking off and killing all seven astronauts on board. If you were a teenager, I mean, if you were a teenager, especially during that time. I know I was. I was in eighth grade and we were watching it. Like that's one thing I remember. Wasn't there a teacher on board? And yes. That was like the big mm-hmm. education draw. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so kids Wait, all- so you saw it live explode? Yes. Kids all oh over. And it says in here too, it was particularly harrowing for the millions of school children watching live across the nation. And Yikes. I won't- Yeah, I I will not forget that. So that was a a big event. President Reagan, you know, this was the Reagan uh, years. He had an assassination attempt on his life in March 1981. Another big event, the Berlin Wall fell in November 1989. The 80s were 
marked by the AIDS epidemic. And we also had Wall Street crashed, a big crash in 1987, which like wiped out trillions in wealth. Also, I know, I didn't find this in my research, which is odd, but I know like the war on drugs that like mm-hmm. was big in the 80s too. So those are some of my 80s events that I found. Yeah. And I found a bunch too, of course. I think for a lot of us, 1991, the internet became available and unrestricted for commercial use. And so I do remember we weren't the first house on the block to get it, but I remember the disc that you had and it had AOL a certain number of minutes. Mm-hmm. And I remember the dial-up sound. So it's funny because I I remember a time before it, I remember getting it. So that is one of the cultural kind of touchstones of the 90s. The president was Bill Clinton. He was elected in 1992. That was a big change. You were talking about the challenger and watching that in school. I will tell you what we watched in school, and that was the O.J. Simpson trial in 1995. I remember they brought televisions Mm -hmm. in. I was in fifth grade in 1995. Why were we watching this trial? I couldn't tell you, but I remember very vividly they brought in TVs for this specific reason. But in addition to that, it became the generation of the 24-hour news cycle. So that's really where all of a sudden CNN, you've got to get the headline. Everything is breaking news. The 90s were known as the post-Cold War decade. So it's kind of that right at the fall of communism until the war on terror in the 2000s. That's like kind of the the part in between. In terms of culture, cultural touchstones, of course, internet, home computers, grunge, video games. You had PlayStation, Sega, Super Nintendo, pagers. (laughs) I remember (laughs) for some God only knows reason I had a pager. (laughs) Again, a child. I don't know why I needed one. Uh, a disc man, videotapes and blockbuster. That was the big thing. Mm-hmm. And kind of you had mentioned this, the movie of the decade. Do you have any guesses what it was in the 90s? Oh, Home Alone? Oh, that's a really good guess, though. That is an excellent guess. No, it was Titanic. Which oh, I'm okay. like, oh, yeah, that was 97, yeah. I believe. Okay. All right. Oh, you were, wait, you said, oh, blockbuster. That's in my mm-hmm. fun packs. Blockbuster Video opened in 1985, which when I think of the 80s, I always think of Blockbuster. Tell me your movie of the decade. Okay. Do you have a guess or do you have any idea what what might be? I might have the title wrong, but is it The Empire Strikes Back? No, but that is one that's on the list of the top 10. Yeah. E.T. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's right. E.T. came out in 1982. I actually, that's the one I was telling you before. I didn't tell you the movie, but I said, I remember going to that movie. I was 10. Yo, that movie is spooky. I saw it as an adult. I was like, wait, this is sad. It was was sad, not spooky. Yeah. (laughs) I saw it as an adult. I'm like, excuse me. I don't think, I don't know that I saw it as a kid. I might've, but I was like, this movie's really sad. What's happening? (laughs) (laughs) It was so sad. I know you know this other movie. Top Gun. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Top Gun and Star Wars. Those are yeah. those are biggies. Now, I have the, a phrase from the 80s, which I want, <sighs> I'm curious to, to even know if you know about this. I'm sure you probably do. But a popular phrase from the 80s was gag me with a spoon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you really say that, though? Did you say yes, that? we did. Of course oh, we gosh. did. Oh, I thought it was just... <laughs> Oh, wow. No, I did not say that personally. (laughs) My slangs, I did say in the 90s, as if, 
from Clueless. Okay. My Bad, also from Clueless. <laughs> uh, Don't Have a Cow, which was from oh, Simpsons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All That in a Bag of Chips. I remember <laughs> that was the thing that people would say, he's all that in a bag of chips. <laughs> Duh, was ni- in the 90s. And you would also say, not like you would say, like, oh, yep, I'm so excited to go to school later. Not, not. <laughs> terrible. Oh That's my god, so bad. It's so bad. Oh my gosh. Okay, I have fashion of the 1980s. Uh, okay. All right, and I wore all of these and more: shoulder pad, parachute pants, oh leg god. warmers, and neon colored clothes. I all, need. Yes, I'm gonna need a visual reference. I'm gonna need you to send me a photo. Well, you know what? I was thinking, I don't, I was thinking, well, maybe it would be fun. I don't know if I want to do it. If we put a picture of us <laughs> in our respective like, decades, right? For, um, on Instagram or up in our, we could do it in our Facebook group. But if we want to put it on Instagram, maybe we'll. I definitely have the big hair. So, I, yes, I do have some neon. I don't know if I could find pictures of me. I was all about that. Like when neon and leg warmers and oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. But I would love pad, to see that. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I want to share those, but we'll see. Shoulder pads are officially making a fashion comeback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I like I, those. That was really my least favorite. I don't like it. I don't think I'm going to partake in the shoulder pad. No like revolution coming back. (laughs) I don't think so either. 90s, I don't even need to explain it because you can just look at people in high school right now and you Uh can see it. Literally, it's the same. Go to Target and you can see literally what it was in the 90s. The 90s are back. So it's the 90s were a departure from the 80s. We were more casual, chic outfits, if you will, (laughs) defined by baggy t-shirts, slip dresses, and sportswear. And I remember wearing that. I had the Jenko jeans. I had giant t-shirts, like Nike t-shirts, very chunky sneakers, gym shoes, um, tall socks, I remember, like tall Nike socks. All of this, again, is like back in the Mm -hmm. 90s. Turtlenecks, very big in the 90s. And high-waisted jeans. I don't think I was, Mm -hmm. I don't know that I partook. I don't know that I was a high-waisted jean kind of gal, but yes, those were some of the fashions that I remember. Uh, the, do you know what the song in the 90s was? It's so bad. Well, no, I, I don't think it's, I do. Hey, Macarena. Oh, God. By the <laughs> Los Del Rio. <laughs> <laughs> Better or worse, Macarena can be regarded as the quintessential song of the 1990s. Oh, gosh. Okay. 80s. I know you, I know you know this song which was one of the most popular songs in the 1980s, Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And also, Michael Jackson, per some of my research, is the biggest celebrity of the 1980s. Oh, I could see that, though. Michael Jackson. I could see Mm -hmm. that. Um, Another super popular song, which you probably can still hear in some bars, these days is Come On Eileen by Dexie's oh. Midnight Runners, which was a one-hit wonder. There was a lot of one-hit wonders in the 80s. Yeah. Tainted yeah. Love. Remember Tainted Love? I just know these songs from like hair bands at bars. Like they, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, that's like what that reminds me of. Oh man. Mm-hmm. Um, big celebrities in the 90s. Michael Jordan, obviously, especially in Chicago. Oprah Winfrey, another Chicago represent. Leo DiCaprio and Jerry Seinfeld. That's what people said. Leo makes sense because of Titanic. And then Mm -hmm. Jerry Seinfeld obviously was on one of the most popular television shows, Seinfeld. Yes. 
Okay, other big celebrities of the 80s, Brooke Shields, Rob Lowe, Eddie Murphy, Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm, from Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. And then I have just a few fun facts to round okay. out the 80s. Go for it. Uh, I already shared Blockbuster Video opened in 1985 in Dallas. MTV Music Television yeah. was launched on August 1st, 1981. And the very first video on MTV was Video Killed the Radio Star by The Bugles. That is just irony right there. That is crazy. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? And the IBM launched the very first PC in 1981. And also in the 80s, you could smoke on an airplane. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) You can keep that. You can have that one. I'll round mine out with some of the trends and the things that I remember from the 90s. Um, Pogs were a very popular game that you would play, those little round circle things. I don't Mm -hmm. know what we did with them. I can't remember, but I remember you made towers and something or or another. Tamagotchis were very popular, trying to keep your little toy pet alive. And then belly button piercings, which I did partake in myself. I think in the very end of the 90s, I think I was 17. So yeah, lots of fun nostalgia. (laughs) (laughs) We also did want to share some of the best-selling books or the top authors of our decades. Yes. How can we forget? We cannot forget books. Cannot forget the books. No. All right. I am going to share the top according... and. some of the lists are different. So I'm going to go with the Publishers Weekly. The number one best-selling book of the 1980s was The Covenant by James Mishner. Never right. heard of it. Number two was The Born Identity by Robert Ludlum. And I'm not going to share number three because it's so, it just so happens to be one of the books I'm sharing today. Come which on. I swear I did not know. I'll tell you the story about how I even picked the But then when I was doing my list before we started recording— it's on it. It's number three. Oh my God. That's actually really cool. That's really I know. Cool. I know. So I went a different tack and I also use Publishers Weekly as my reference. And I just looked at trends over the course of the decade. Lots and lots of Stephen King was mm-hmm. the best selling book of the decade, particularly The Stand, the complete and uncut edition. It came out in the 90s with the full version. You also saw a ton of John Grisham, The Firm, The Pelican Brief. Mm-hmm. All of his books were on these lists. Danielle Steele, Mary Higgins Clark, and then one title I did grab was The Bridges of Madison County by Robert James Waller. Okay. Yeah. The book that came to my mind right away when we were prepping for this episode was The Secret History by Donna Tartt. And I thought for sure that this book would be on the bestsellers. It apparently was not. That one came out in 1992. Um, Okay. One thing I will notice about the the list, it was a lot of the same authors over and over again, and it was also very, very white. Mm-hmm. A lot of, yeah, the same yeah. types of authors on these lists. But now I'm like, oh, now I'm very curious. I kind of want to read the best-selling books across other decades, too. I don't know what would be, even from like last year. I'd have to look. Mm-hmm. Did you read The Firm? From the- Yeah. Oh, I uh, love yeah, John Grisham. I did. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I love that, mm-hmm. too. He was some of the first books that I read, I remember, like in the 90s, probably. Mm-hmm. I read, I remember loving legal drama. I just thought he was brilliant. I mean, he yeah. is, but <laughs> I read a lot of his, yes. Um, you're right. Stephen King is very popular on the list in the mm-hmm. 80s, too. And yeah. Firestarter was the one that was popular. And I read 
Pet Cemetery when I was 16 yes. in the 80s. So that was my favorite. Judith Krantz, which actually I read a lot of Judith Krantz in high school. She was a ro- I think she's still alive. I'm pretty sure. But she was big romantic suspense author. Oh, big romantic I've never suspense. Heard of her. And Sydney Sheldon. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used to, especially in high school, romantic suspense was my romantic suspense and thrillers was always really. I've my, never heard of genre. romantic suspense. I'm looking. I had to. <laughs> That's Google like Nora G- Robert. Nora Roberts would okay. would be considered. Have you read Nora Roberts? Mm-mm. No. Okay. Okay. I looked her up. Bless her heart. She passed away in 2019. But I see okay. her. These covers are everything 80s. I love them so much. You would see these covers like if you were in a like a timeshare or like borrowing somebody's home, like a vacation home, these would be in the bookcase. Yes. Per- oh, yes. You are so oh, right. Wow. Oh, gosh. Uh, All right. Well, uh, hopefully you enjoyed this walk down memory lane with us. I know we enjoyed coming up with this list. Any other thoughts to add? No, I think culturally, or I don't know if it would be considered lifestyle, but of course I I can't not say something that I really loved about growing up in the 80s was no cell phones. I love my cell phone, but I do love the fact that I remember a time when you could just, you know, you go out and about and you didn't have, you, you couldn't have such immediate connections in your pocket. Like sometimes that fr- that was kind of freeing as a kid. Mm-hmm. And then I wonder how life would be. Can you imagine if you had to live right now with an answering machine? And that's the only way that you got messages. Great. Right. I Don't just remember stuff phone. like that. <laughs> I, I just talked to a student. He was so funny. He's like, well, I'll send you a note, an email if I need anything. He's like, I won't call you or anything like that. I'll just email you. <laughs> I was like, okay. And you can call me on the phone. It would be okay. <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate that. I, you know, of course, I didn't have a cell phone until a lot later. I remember spending a lot of my time writing letters. I was a pen pal fanatic. When I tell you I had a pen pal in every... <laughs> Every state, that is I was awesome. obsessed with pen pals, and you know it's funny. Like, what is Instagram? But basically, pen pals. So you are all my my mm-hmm. pen pals. Isn't that funny? That I'm like, wow, I've been pretty consistent and read and went to the library. Like, those are the things that I spent my time doing. Quickly before we wrap up, I just had a thought: Is Colleen Hoover our present day Judith Krantz? Great question. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, she could. She definitely could be. That's romantic mm-hmm. suspense for yes. sure. And I looked up the best-selling books of 2022. Of course, the first uh, uh, four of the five are Colleen Hoover, and the other one is Where the Crawdads Sing. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah maybe she is. I wonder. Maybe she is. I don't know. It would be really interesting to find out. I don't even know if Colleen Hoover has ever said who her inspirations like were, but I wonder. If she no. was inspired by Judith Krantz. It kind Maybe. of makes sense now that you say that. Right? Nora Roberts, too. I mean, sure. Nora Roberts has been writing for a long time. I can see Colleen Hoover like being a comp for her, too. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder if in 20 years, people are going to look at the covers of Colleen Hoover books and be like, oh, those are so the early <laughs> 2020s. <laughs> Probably. Probably. Oh, wow. All right. Well, let's wrap it up. I want to share my first book. I bet you this is one you haven't heard of. But I'm not sure. My first book was actually written in the 90s and, of course, takes place in present day, which then was 1996. It is Malice by Kaigo Higashino. And I have no idea what made me grab this book. I think I saw it on Kindle Unlimited. 
And I liked the title and the cover. And I jumped in and noticed, like, I think on the first page, it like gives you the time period. And you're like, okay. I'm like, this will work. Acclaimed bestselling novelist Kuniko Hidaka is found brutally murdered in his home on the night before he's planning to leave Japan and relocate to Vancouver. And you jump right in. Like, you are in it from the jump. His body is found in his office, a locked room within his locked house by his wife and his best friend, both of whom have rock-solid alibis. So it seems. Mm -hmm. So at the crime scene, police detective Kayoshiro Kaga recognizes Hidaka's best friend, Nanaguchi, because they used to work together. Um, They were both teachers years ago, and Kaga went on to join the police force while Nanaguchi eventually left to become a full-time writer, although he's not as successful as his now-deceased best friend. Kaga's investigating and eventually uncovers evidence that indicates the two writers' relationship was very different than they claimed. They might have been anything but best friends. The question before Kaga isn't necessarily who or how, but why. He becomes obsessed with figuring out why this person did what they did. It is definitely a game of cat and mouse. And personally, I don't love police procedurals. It's not like my comfort genre, but I loved this book. It was so entertaining. I will say there is a lot of telling, not showing. It didn't bother me, though, because that was a setup of the book, because there's a lot of written material in it. And I think it lent itself very well to that format. You find out who the killer is pretty early in the book. And the story is really about how Kaga, the detective, was able to figure it out. He, again, becomes obsessed with figuring out the motives. And wow, he was so clever. (laughs) Never in a million years would I have ever been able to put these pieces together. I loved how the narrative showed him working to find the answer instead of it just being like, aha, it came to me magically. (laughs) Like he was like working backward and like uncovering little clues. The author did such a good job slowly revealing pieces to the reader. Even though you know who did it, there were still tons of twists and turns and surprises along the way, which I loved. I think this was a great fictional detective. He was flawed, but not in the typical ways that the detectives are flawed, like, oh, he's lonely, he's an alcoholic. No, this was, he was still flawed, but he had his own reasons, and you kind of come to understand that. There were tons of great 90s references in here. One of the plot points revolves around technology we seldom use today, and I was so delighted. I had to tell Jonathan immediately. I was like, oh my gosh, let me tell you how we figured it out. He's like, great. <laughs> no, but it was it was super fun. I really enjoyed this book. It's on Kindle Unlimited, and there are four books in the series. So if you try this and you enjoy it, there's three more for you. I had a blast. This book was Malice by Kaigo Higashino. Oh, I, that sounds so fun. I love watching you. Well, I can see you, so I love watching you talk about it. Oh, that's so fun. Okay. I thoroughly enjoyed my first book. It is Sag Harbor by Colson Whitehead. Oh, yeah. Yay. I have wanted to read Colson Whitehead, but just honestly, I wasn't sure when or if I would be ready for the Nickel Boys. So I came across this in my research. I did not even know that he had this book. And this book is set in 1985. And you have Benji Cooper. And he is one of the only black students at an elite prep school in Manhattan. He spends his falls and winters going to roller disco bar mitzvahs, playing too much Dungeons and Dragons, and trying to catch glimpses of nudity on late night cable TV. When something happens on the first day of high school, it tremendously embarrasses him. And he feels like he he's socially doomed for the next four years. But... 
The saving grace for Benji is that every summer he gets to escape to the Hamptons to Sag Harbor, which is a small community of African-American professionals that have built a, a world of their own. So the book takes place at the beginning of summer and ends at Labor Day. And his parents only come out to Sag Harbor on the weekends. Now, when the story starts, Benji is 13, and then he has a brother, and he has a bunch of friends, and they basically take care of themselves Monday through Friday, which is crazy. Well, it's the 80s, babe. It's the 80s. It uh, it truly is. I mean, we did have a lot of freedom in the 80s, but this is a coming-of-age story. This is also about the fact that Benji starts to kind of see the world a little bit differently. He becomes very aware of the fact that the world is a little bit different for the white people up there and the black people up in the Hamptons. And how is that all going to shake out over the course of this summer? I listened to this and the narration was really good. I had a smile on my face for for just a lot of this book because I love coming-of-age stories. I particularly liked this because it's actually, it's considered an autobiographical fiction novel because it is based on his life, on his own life. So he, like, his fiction writing in this book is inspired by his very own life, which I really loved. I mean, the amount of 80s nostalgia bits and pieces that were thrown into this story made me smile. I had to, I just had to jot down so many of them. So a 15-year-old teenage boy has a very particular focus on girls. (laughs) And so there is a lot of like thinking about girls, talking to girls, and that awkward stage of life. There is music from the 80s. There are games from the 80s, like Hacky Sack. There are TV shows mentioned, like Gilligan's Island, drive-in movie theaters, they, they um, during the week, have to go and get their own, they go and get their own food and they get TV dinners. And like, oh that's God. what they, yes. <laughs> just, I mean, TV dinners while listening to mixed tapes. It was just so much 80s that it made me smile. I enjoyed this. It's not fast-paced. This is a character-driven story. It is a slice of life coming of age that looks at the passage of time and what it means to reach the end of things, the end of summer, the end of youth, the end of innocence, and even more than that. It might not necessarily be for everyone, but I did enjoy getting a glimpse of what life was like for a teenager, specifically a black teenage boy who had a completely different experience of growing up in the 80s as me, this who was a young white girl in the 80s. So I think, too, if you are raising teenage boys right now, that give this, maybe give this a try. I, I kind of wish I would have had this when my boys were teenagers. Um, it's just a really, a really good look at, at what goes through the mind of a teenage boy. And all the good, bad, and the ugly. So that was Sag Harbor by Colson Whitehead. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I am excited because my book, my next book, is a mother-son story. And I feel oh. like 
in my review, I'm right, you know, I was writing this, I'm like, I don't read a lot of mother-son stories. And it maybe it's just self-selecting or maybe there just aren't as many. But I was like, I think Renee would like some of this, uh, the relationships in this book. So book two is The Editor by Stephen Rowley. And he is the author of The Gunkle, which I loved. And I was intrigued by the Kennedys. So if you picture this cover, it's got Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis's face on, on the cover in mm-hmm. animation. And once I figured out this was set in the 90s, I was like, done, sold. <laughs> and so... It's about James Small, and he has been trying to make it as a writer for years in New York City in the 90s. And the book opens after he finally sells his novel to an editor at a major publishing house. He is heading into their meeting, and who should walk in but Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. He had no idea that he that she was his editor. And so, of course, he's like fumbling over his words and she actually has fallen in love with his candidly autobiographical novel that describes his own dysfunctional family. So she agrees to take it on and be his editor. And he eventually comes down from the clouds and realizes she's just a mere mortal. But they end up having this really nice friendship slash relationship together. The book is fiction. The book that he's writing, it uh, it's a book within a book. So follow <laughs> along with me here. <laughs> the, the book that he's writing is fiction, but he borrows heavily from his life. And some of the things he reveals begin to unravel the already fragile relationships, both within his family and with his partner. So it's tough because like, even though it's fiction, it's like obviously based on his real life. James suffers from crippling imposter syndrome, and he's not sure if he's actually going to be able to finish this thing. Jackie's not having it, though. She believes in him even when he doesn't believe in himself, and she pushes him to write an authentic ending, and it leads him to uncover a long-buried family secret. I really, really liked this book. I thought it was going to go one way, but about 50% through, I was like, ooh, wait a minute. Okay, we're getting a little different here. It was published in 2019, but I thought he did a nice job making the story feel like it was authentic to the time period. I personally didn't catch any, like, oh, we wouldn't have done that in the 90s. Like, it felt correct. There was no social media. There was no cell phones. You know, they're leaving messages on answering machines. They've got the 24-hour news cycle. And I love Jackie as a character in this story. I sort of wish I tried the audio. I did it on the page. But I'm so curious to know if they tried to do her voice in the narration because she has a very particular way of speaking. So I'm wondering if they got that right. The author must have done a ton of research to craft this version of a real person because you have to be respectful of the real figure that you're talking about. And they talk about her life and her marriages and everything else. But I felt like he did it in a really authentic way. Like It felt like I was reading a true story about Jackie as an editor in his acknowledgments. He's like, I made up most of this. Of course, I did my research. But if you want the real story, here's two references. So he does give you the nonfiction books that pair with it. I also really felt for James. He is a flawed character. The dialogue is a little bit goofy, but like in a very realistic way, like it almost felt like like it felt like the author's voice. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, you're kind of it just it was funny to read this character. He doesn't always make the best choices. Sometimes I'm like, James, come on. <laughs> but he's trying. And that's the that's the nut, right? It's not a perfect life. There's not this kind of like rosy colored glasses. But I loved reading this mother-son story. I thought it gave a lot of insight, too, into the writing and editing process, which I thought was really, really fun. This was a hit for me. I and I highly recommend it. I cannot wait to read his book coming out on May 30th called The Celebrants. So we're getting a lot of mm-hmm. Rowley in my future. But this one was The Editor by Stephen Rowley. Yeah. 
I had that. I mean, I know I had that book when it came out, and I don't know why I never read it. It's a, it sounds exactly mm-hmm. like something I would like. I, I actually remember I DNF'd it years ago, or years ago. I think it came out in 2019, so it wasn't that long <laughs> ago. Years ago. But it was a slower, pleasant story, and I thought it was going to be that way the whole time. But you definitely get some drama toward the middle end. I, I really liked the progression of it. Okay, good. All right. I am very excited to tell you about my next book. Which was, what is it? Which, this is number three? This is number three on the yeah. best-selling books of the 1980s, and it is Rage of Angels by Sidney Sheldon, published mm. in 1980. Now, I read a lot of Sidney Sheldon's. I did not read this one, though, and I can't believe I missed it, but this was so good. So good. I loved it. This is about Jennifer Parker, and she's the daughter of a small-town lawyer, And she has just joined the staff of the district attorney of Manhattan's office. She intends to fight for justice just like her father did. But less than 24 hours after being sworn in, Jennifer's hopes, dreams, possibly her career, seem to be smashed in the blink of an eye. And she also has found herself facing disbarment and a possible prison sentence, all in the opening chapter. (laughs) It's a lot. So begins the story of a brilliant and beautiful young woman who fights to keep her law career and dreams of being one of the country's top defense attorneys. It is also the story of two powerful men in her life, Adam Warner, who is a man of honor and integrity and born to lead his country, and Michael Moretti, an accused mafia Don who's darkly compelling, strange, and vengeful. When the worlds of all three of them collide, how much death and destruction will be left in their wake? I am telling you, if this is not right up my alley. (laughs) For real. (laughs) I absolutely remember why I loved Sidney Sheldon. Now, the crazy thing about this book is how it held up. It's crazy that it was published in 1980, but overall, it holds up. It's fast-paced. I flew through this in one day. And the fun thing about this was there is an audio. I listened to this. The audio production was made, I want to I say that it's like 2007. It's a current modern feeling audiobook, mm-hmm. which was great. What I, okay, I loved everything about this. What I specifically loved was reading a book that was clearly set long before the internet. Like you mentioned in your first book, uh, the high, there was nothing high tech about the story. There was no, like Jennifer had an investigator and he had to like do the old fashioned way of investigating. He had to leave messages on people's machines. When there were questions in their cases, they had to like, make phone calls to investigate. And I kept finding myself thinking, oh my gosh, just Google it. Like you could just Google that and find out. Yeah, right. You could, But it didn't bother me. It just made such a different story when, I don't know, investigators had to do, to find out things the old fashioned way. I loved Jennifer. She narrates the story. It's her perspective. She was strong. She was smart. Now, she didn't always make 
the best decisions. I will have to say that. But she was likable and flawed. She may have allowed two men to bring absolute chaos to her life. You do know I love a good love triangle. And to have a love triangle built into a fast-paced thriller, for me, there is nothing better. The really great thing about this story too, other than what I've already said, this story went in directions I did not see coming. I found myself applauding Sydney Sheldon for going places that really like not only shocked me, but it was like, oh, oh gosh, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you did that to that character. I love courtroom thrillers. A lot of this takes place in the courtroom. I love love triangles, like I mentioned. And I also love the fact that he incorporated some actual romance in this story. And to top it off, I found this to be unexpectedly bittersweet by the end. Actually, somebody, I think it was a Goodreads review, I ended up going back and and reading, said the last page was one of the most bittersweet passages that they had ever read. And I was like, that's kind of true. I Just so much unexpected in the story. I loved it. I think I'm going to go back and read some more Sydney Sheldon's that I missed way back when. So this one's Rage of Angels by Sydney Sheldon. Okay. Bittersweet. Love triangle. Did I hear mafia or mob? Yes, you heard mafia. Uh-huh. I'm like, uh-huh. excuse me. This, How, <laughs> this is Renee's this all is, catnip rolled into one. I was giddy during, like, You're I was like, just ee! giddy with this book. It has I everything love I love. Yeah, I yeah. love when that happens when you're just like giddy, when you're, you know, you're reading a good book and you're just like, yes, okay, I'm in it. I'm, you're not like wondering or any of that. You're like, I'm just, I found it. Yes, yes, I love yes. It. That's oh. my favorite. All right, Renee, let me tell you about my shelf edition. Okay. It is called The Sun Sets in Singapore. What a tongue twister oh. by Kehinde Fadipe. And this one is set in Singapore. They are basking in Singapore's nonstop sunshine, their low tax rate, and luxury goods market. You've got three friends, Dara, Amaka, and Lillian, living the glamorous expat dream until their carefully constructed lives are upended by a handsome and mysterious new arrival. Ugh, what's he going to do? So these are three women. It sounds like they are all expats. You've got Dara, a workaholic lawyer from the UK. Amaka is a sharp-tongued banker from Nigeria. And Lillian, a pianist turned trailing spouse from the U.S., desperately trying to stay in Singapore after her marriage comes to a messy end. Sounds like the three women have a friendship with each other, and things are going well until they have a chance encounter with Lonnie, a man who is inexplicably, impossibly the spitting image of her late father, and it triggers grief that she spent a lifetime repressing, and they're forced to confront the ghosts of their past. All of this I really liked because I liked the cover. I saw it on NetGalley. I'm like, excuse me, what is this? <laughs> and I also, <laughs> I really enjoy expat stories and I like stories of friends groups when like a new newcomer comes along and kind of disrupts everything. So I was very, very intrigued by this one. Give me a sec. Oh, well, this one, we got to wait a little bit, guys. Sorry about that. It comes out December 5th, 2023. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> you just I think had, I, yeah. 
I just tempted you and now we're going to have to wait. Oh my goodness. But once you see the cover, you'll know why I thought, oh, this sounds like the perfect beach read because it's I was going to say, I thought you were going to say like August because that sounds like (laughs) a summer. Like, why isn't that published in the summer? I don't know. I thought I was going to say August too, but this book was The Sun Sets in Singapore by Kahinde Fadipe. Okay. Yeah. That sounds really good. Okay. You might like my shelf edition, Tina. It's Friends Like These by Meg Razoff. Comes out May 30th. I picked this because of the time period and the place. It's set in New York City in the summer of 1983. A summer journalism internship in New York City was meant to be everything 18-year-old Beth wanted. From the moment she arrives in the city, she feels wrong, though. She feels like she has the wrong hair. She feels like her clothes are terrible. Her smile's not good enough. And to top it all off, she has to share a hot cockroach-filled apartment with a couple who are falling out of love. So things are looking a little bleak for Beth. But then she meets her fellow interns. There is ambitious out-of-towner Dan, preppy rich boy Oliver, and Edie a beautiful, wild, magnetic girl that Beth can't help but be drawn to. And it's not long before Beth and Edie are best friends, the sort of heady, all-consuming best friendship that's impossible to resist. But with the temperatures rising and deceit mounting, betrayal and lies might be just around the corner. Who needs enemies when you have friends like these? This is billed as an intoxicating novel about a summer of unforgettable firsts of independence, lies, love, and the inevitable loss of innocence. And it's being comped as for fans of Judy Bloom's Summer Sisters, which I absolutely loved. And that is also what got my attention. So that is Friends Like These by Meg Razoff. Love it. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for today. We thank you for spending a part of your day with us. Links to all the books mentioned can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can help us by following wherever you listen and by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get our show out to new listeners and grows our audience. And don't forget, if you would like access to our exclusive bonus content and our community, you can join us for $5 a month on patreon.com slash booktalk, etc. If you'd like to connect with us, Email us at booktalketc at gmail.com. You can also find us at booktalketc on Instagram, Tina at TBR, etc., and me, Renee, at It's Book Talk. Talk to you next week. In the meantime, remember everything's better with books. You've got mail.